millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Um, today I'm looking at the question of, of war reporting. Um, if you've listened to the podcast over the years, you'll know that, well, crikey, probably going back years now, um, I did talk a lot about the the kind of the history of war reporting in the 20th century uh, and the kind of the, the classic work is the first casualty by Philip Knightley. Um, the uh, Times journalist who uh, famously broke the uh, Kim Philby spy scandal. Or more to the point, he in, in the late 1960s, he and the Insight team from the uh, um, uh, Times newspaper uh, broke the fact that uh, the original story about this, uh, the defector being a, a lowly foreign office clerk was in fact uh, a, a, a cover-up and, and it had been the head of counterintelligence at MI6. So a, a guy of some impeccable journalistic uh, pedigree. But his book, um, The uh, the First Casualty, is a really, really first-class history uh, of 20th century war reporting and um, the kind of the uses and abuses of, of journalism on the on the battlefield. But here he talks about uh, Western journalists and later um, Nazi, I don't want to call them journalists, but Nazi sort of uh, state propagandists um, in the uh, in, in in on the Russian front. Uh, of course, Western journalists were working as largely state propagandist um, uh, figures, but perhaps with a slightly more ethical and journalistic leeway. Um, he writes, uh, The war between Germany and the Soviet Union began on June 22nd, 1941, the clash of the two of the greatest armies the world had ever seen. This was the decisive battlefront of the Second World War, and if ever a campaign deserved the fullest possible coverage uh, from the best war correspondents, surely this was it. 
Yet the Eastern Front remained throughout uh, the war the most poorly reported part of, of the Second World War. 50 of the most famous names in newspaper and radio were in Russia at one time or another. Yet the story of those incredible uh, early days when the German army stormed across the border uh, was not fully reported until after the war. Events like the Battle of Moscow, the Siege of Leningrad, Stalingrad, the Battle of Sebastopol, the Battle of Kursk never received proper attention. Other major stories from 800,000 Russians who fought for the Germans to the Katyn Forest Massacre either were not written or um, at all, or were written as virtual propaganda handouts. As a result, the reader in the West remained largely ignorant of what was going on in the Soviet Union. The Russians themselves uh, knew not much more, and some of the best reporting came from the Axis side. The star of war, uh, the, the start of the war on the Eastern Front, caught Western war correspondence unprepared, despite the fact that everyone knew that the two greatest powers of continental Europe were about to come to grips. Newspapers in the United States and Britain had carried reports day after day that Germany was about to attack the Soviet Union, yet June 22nd found only seven Western correspondents in Russia, two of whom, two of whom Erskine Caldwell and his wife, the, photo the photographer Margaret Bourke-White, were there doing a feature for life about the countryside. The Times of London and the New York Times had no one in Russia at all. The other correspondents, Henry Shapiro of the United Press, Henry Cassidy of Associated Press, Morris Lovell of Reuters, Jean Champenois of Havas, and A.T. Charlton of the Daily Telegraph had no idea war was about to break out. Cassidy was actually away on holiday. And so the first news came from Germany. There, correspondence had been on the alert since Saturday, June the 14th, when all telephone communications out of Berlin had suddenly been cut. This, plus the fact that they had been forbidden to write on Russo-German relations, on penalty of expulsion, made it obvious that to the correspondence that war was immediate, or was imminent. The announcement came from von Ribbentrop himself at the press conference at the German Foreign Office at 6am on, on Sunday, June the 22nd. Correspondents were allowed to send their stories immediately. The news was broadcast on shortwave radio uh, by shortwave by Radio Berlin within the hour, uh, picked up in London and New York, and printed that day. The Germans maintained their early lead. A PK reporter. Karl Heinz Seiss flew from uh, over the battlefront in a Luftwaffe plane during the early hours, uh, and the Frankfurter Zeitung carried a carried his story on Monday, uh, June the twenty third, the first account of the fighting. The attack against the enemy begins. There is a target just below, a marvelous sight to see. There are many large hangars, and at the edge of the airstrip, lined up as if on parade. There is a mass of Soviet-Russian fighter planes. The bombs from our plane fall accurately and with excellent results. Right on the nose, the enemy craft uh, on the ground burst into flames. The fires spring up from one to the other. On the Soviet side, all was confusion. Bombs showered on Kiev, Sevastopol, Kaunas and other cities to the rear of the fighting. Border posts were overwhelmed. Brest-Litovsk and the other frontier towns were shelled. 
In those first few days, 2,000 planes, the greater part of the Russian Air Force, were destroyed. The Russians lost thousands of tanks, half a million men killed, and perhaps as many as a million taken prisoner. The basic trouble, as the official war history later revealed, was that the Russians had made the mistake of believing their own propaganda. Any fascist or imperialist state that attacked the Soviet Union would collapse at the very first shots because its workers would rebel against their government. But as two million Germans, supported by thousands of tanks and planes, pushed into the Soviet Union, no Russian knew at first how serious the situation was. The first communique, published at 10 a.m. at uh, 10 p.m. on June the 22nd, showed that even Soviet leaders had no idea what was happening. In the course of the day, regular German troops fought our uh, fought our frontier troops and achieved minor successes in a number of sectors. The confusion grew. The next day, the Red Army announced the fall of Brest-Litovsk. It did not fall, in fact, until another month later, on July 24th. Then on the 3rd of July, Stalin broadcast a warning to his comrades, citizens, brothers and sisters, fighters in our army and navy, of the serious threat to Mother Russia, and announced the scorched-earth policy that appalled the world, yet captured its admiration. But he did not explain what had happened. So there is this um, informational chaos that happens um, that, that happens um, at the beginning of Barbarossa, partly as a result of, um, as it says, uh, the um, Soviet leadership believing its own misinformation, uh, partly as a result of a strange complacency from Western war correspondents. Um, and, and partly as a result of the, you know, the the actual devastation uh, of the attack. I mean, the the response of um, journalism of the the wider media system uh, of the uh, Soviet and Allied powers is as a kind of a metaphor, really, for the kind of the chaos and disarray of Soviet armies uh, on the ground. Philip Knightley writes. It is clear that Soviet leaders decided very early on that the Russians should be told nothing about the war that might damage morale. The danger could not be minimised, but if presented in the right way, it could arouse the patriotic fervour necessary for eventual victory. Therefore, only official news would be tolerated. All private radios had to be handed into the militia, and loudspeakers giving the Moscow programme um, uh, became for most Russians, the main source of information. Apart from news, filtering back from the front um, by word of mouth. The official communiques uh, broadcast regularly never mentioned the real number of Russian casualties, avoided major disasters, and gave only the vaguest indications of where the fighting was actually taking place. But since the communiques were compiled by non-literary figures of limited creative ability and, and with strong bureaucratic tendencies, the same phrases began to recur. And it did not take the Soviet citizen long to work out the nuances of the communiques. In the, fight, in the phrase fighting in the Smolensk region or in the Minsk district, the key word was direction and meant that Smolensk or Minsk had already been lost. Heavy defensive battles against superior enemy forces was the worst possible news and meant that the Russians were in full retreat. A complex situation 
was one of utmost gravity. Nothing of consequence occurred could mean either that nothing had happened or that there was nothing the military leaders were prepared to talk about. But what could anyone have made of this, of this, from this sentence from the Times report taken from Reuters, which had in turn been uh, taken from Pravda or Izvetsia? Particularly fierce fighting has developed in the areas D and B, where the situation remains grave. Um, so highly, highly ambiguous. I mean, of course, when this, the the, situ- the tables are turned after Stalingrad, um, German reports of the defeat are kind of shrouded in all sorts of ambiguity and uh, are op- open to uh, in- interpretation and only. Uh, a short while afterwards is the, the final shocking truth uh, revealed. There was no way of checking the figure um, uh, of losses. It emerged much later that those had been wildly inflated, um, as the following example indicates. In the Times on August the 23rd, 1941, the Russian High Command claimed that in the first two months of the war, the Germans had lost two million men killed, wounded or taken prisoner. This was actually the strength of the whole German army on the Eastern Front. And the 8,000 tanks had been destroyed, more than double the number of the tanks of the entire German army in Russia. As the war progressed, the Soviet Union knew very well what was happening on all fronts, but it gave out its version to its people, anything, for, um, anything from five days to five years later. It could be argued that this kept information from the enemy and did the people at home no harm. On the other hand, in a struggle for its existence, um, if the people um, actually doing the fighting have not the right to know how the war is going, who has? Philip Knightley continues. Apart from the communiques, there was um, there were the Russian newspapers with their country in danger propaganda, their outcry against cowardice, their appeals to patriotism, their astronomical figures of German losses, and their scanty war reports. These reports were written not by regular journalists who had turned to war reporting, but more often by well-known uh, writers who gave a somewhat unreal literary style to the news. The best of these... Um, uh, was Ilya Ehrenberg, who wrote for the Red Star, uh, and whose bitterly anti-German articles were often reprinted in the West. Others include Vasily Grossman, also of Red Star, and the, the authors of the two novels, uh, Stalingrad and Life and Fate. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Among other writing, um, Alex Sukov, a poet, Konstantin Simonov. There's, if you are interested in this, in Orlando Feige's book, The Whisperers, there is a, a kind of a, almost like a biography in, in the book of Konstantin Simonov um, and his his rise to kind of Stalinist superstardom. He was um, one of these extraordinarily fortunate figures who uh, was courted by Stalin and never really quite lost favour, even though there were occasions where you, one could certainly imagine Stalin um, turning on him. But um, he was perhaps the most significant of all the uh, Stalinist war propagandists. Mikhail Sholokhov um, and Boris Mikhailov. Their stories make curious reading for Western eyes and might more properly be termed propaganda essays than reports. Ehrenberg, uh, for example, writing in 1942 on the anniversary of the revolution, began his article, We did not create our life easily, but this rough and polished life was our own way of life. It reminded one of the rough draft of an an astounding poem, all blotted and scratched. When we were building nurseries, Evil news came to us from the West. Uh, there, they might, uh, there they were building bombers, which would kill hundreds of, two, of children in one night. The smell of Germany's animal breath was wafted on us, and we said uh, to our wives, you'll have to wear the old wedding dress another winter. These Russian war correspondents were not meant to report battles, although, as shall be seen, one of them was present throughout the siege of Stalingrad or to build up individual war personalities. The first stricture was because the Russians felt that the official communique gave sufficient news to the fighting. The second, because communist ideology held that what was important was not the individual, but what he did. And of course, not the individual, but of course the the collective. The uh, Western reporters in Russia were, if anything, of, of, of equal and significant importance in the facilitation of the kind of news gathering process. Philip Knightley writes, Henry Cassidy, on his way back from Moscow to, to Moscow from a Black Sea holiday report, a resort where he had been at the outbreak of the war, had seen the gigantic machinery of the Soviet Union's mobilisation scheme grind into action. His report, Ivan Goes Calmly to War, escaped the censor's attention and was the first wartime descriptive article sent from Moscow. This article, and the fact that it was becoming clear that the Russians were not going to be beaten in 10 days, as had been predicted in the West, stimulated the news um, sense of editors around the world. And later in June and early in July, their best men were sent hurrying to Russia. The United States group was soon to include such correspondents as C.L. Salzberger, A.T. Steele, Wallace Carroll. If you recall, um, I interviewed 
Um, we had in- an interview about Wallace Carroll uh, last year, and there is a follow-up coming soon. So, um, uh, so, so tune into that. And Alice Leone Motes. Edgar Snow, um, the author of uh, Red Star Over China, the uh, exclusive interview he had with Mao. Again, I think we did something on that a a few years ago. Uh, Leyland Stowe, Walter Kerr, Larry Lazier arrived. From Britain, there was Philip uh, Philip Jordan, Vernon Bartlett, Charlotte Haldane, uh, Ralph Parker, Alexander Worth. Alexander Worth, um, I did a thing on his account of the siege of Leningrad quite a few years ago now uh, and it was his son Alexander Woodworth's son that went on to write the famous Black Book of Communism which is the, the kind of the, the damning account of all of communism's crimes in the 20th century uh, and later Paul Holt eventually there were three Australians Eric McLaughlin, Jeff Blunden and James Aldridge of Time Magazine later to be relieved by Dick Lauter the newcomers arrived in Moscow by roundabout plane and ship routes, fairly believing that they were heading for the front. Instead, they found that the Russians had quickly created a system especially for them, a system so diabolical that to this day, old war correspondents shudder when they recall it. To understand why the Russians behaved the way they did, it must be remembered that in 1918-19, Britain and the United States, along with nearly every other major power in the world at that time, had done their best to strangle Russian communist, the Russian communist state at birth. Then, the move in Britain at the time to, um, of the, the Russo-Finnish conflict to switch the war away from Germany to Russia had not passed unnoticed in Moscow nor had the banning in January 1941 of the British communist paper The Daily Worker. Moreover, the Russians were suspicious that the Western war correspondents might be intelligence agents, a suspicion that was not without justification. The use of journalist spies from Graham Greene to Kim Philby had a, a long tradition, though admittedly Philby was a Soviet agent at the time. Um, Western war correspondents were placed under the care of Solomon Abramovich Lazovsky, um, Vice Commissar for Foreign Affairs and Official Spokesman for the Soviet Information Bureau. A suave man of 63, Lazovsky had begun life selling matches and lemons in the street and had risen to become a teacher of social philosophy. Later he went into exile in Paris where he met Lenin and afterwards he took part in the 1917 revolution. Eventually he emerged as secretary of the railway workers union as well as giving culture uh, giving as well as speaking cultured russian lozovsky spoke good french and german and adequate english and spanish for the western war correspondents he was the voice of russia their principal source of information their passport to the front under lozovsky working uh, worked uh, nikolai palgunov um, the former a former director of tas the news agency who was, a chief, who was chief of the press department of the Foreign Commissariat and the head censor. And two assistants, Pietra Amirov and Viktor Kozmiesko. Um, this team successfully crushed any hopes the war correspondents might have had of telling the whole story of the war in Russia. Lozovsky held a press conference at least twice a week at which he would uh, he would parry brilliantly every effort to extract any real information, 
could he identify the unnamed city that the communique reported had been retaken by the Red Army? My dear sir, if the army wanted you to know the name of the city, then the communique would have said it. The BBC had reported some Japanese ships blown up by Russian mines. Could Comrade Lozovsky comment? Ah, well, what do the Japanese newspapers say? Questioner. I'm afraid I don't know. Lozovsky. I'm afraid I don't know either. When could the correspondence go to the front? In good time, I hope. Lozovsky never refused to answer a question, but at the end of the conference, when the correspondents checked their notes, there was seldom a thing they could write. Such information as he did give was frequently unreliable. He would insist that the Germans were far from uh, some particular point, the fall of which would then be announced in the next communique. On the rare occasions when the correspondents did manage to discover something for themselves and proceed to write it, Palgunov or one of his censors would kill it at once. No individual opinions, no speculation, no predictions were allowed. The reason here was that because the world knew censorship existed in Russia, it followed that every dispatch of a correspondent was, allow uh, was allowed to send had, in effect, the official stamp of approval. In vain, the correspondents argued that their stories would appear under their own names and would be read as their opinions. No, Lozovsky said. If it had been passed by the Soviet Union, the opinion must also be that of the Soviet Union. The, point, the only positive point about this was that the censor's blue pencil also fell on what the censor knew to be incorrect. This enabled the correspondent to get some slight idea of what was going on at the front by including the latest rumours of his dispatch. If the censor passed it, then the rumours were true. Or um, it was a hit and miss method, scarcely worth, uh, worthy of the stories that should have been written, but it was better than nothing. Because, Palgunov, um, because if Palgunov had his way, nothing was what the correspondents would have sent. All photography, all photography was banned to the horror of Margaret Bourke White. The biggest country enters the biggest war in the world, uh, and I was the only photographer on the spot. But with cajolery and the help of Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's personal envoy to Stalin, Miss Bourke White managed to get out photographs of Moscow under night bombing attack, and even a portrait of Stalin himself. Descriptive stories, such as uh, one that Cassidy of the Associated Press wanted to send on how Moscow looked under camouflage. Lenin's red and black marble mausoleum in the Red Square was decorated like a country cottage, were forbidden because they might have been used to German bombers. Human interest stories bewildered the Russians, who became convinced that the American press was interest on interested only in trivia. Now, I'm going to continue with this. Um, obviously, it's, it's quite a, a lengthy chapter, but I think it's really, really interesting. Uh, I'm really full of that kind of really, really rich detail. Um, as you see, as you probably uh, realised this week, um, if you're a regular listener, you know, I've had quite a, a hiatus from uh, doing the podcast um, for a while due to various kind of uh, disruptions and things like moving house and that, that sort of thing and having my kind of umpteen bouts of COVID and that sort of stuff. But we're, we're in a good space now to, to really um, put out quite a few episodes. So we're going to continue to do that and uh, I'll return to Philip Knightley hopefully next week sometime. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. I hope you found that useful and interesting, a uh, different approach to looking at the war in the Eastern Front. 
and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Take care. We've got some cool interviews coming up next week, which you, of course, in, hopefully enjoy. Uh, and I'll catch you soon. All the best. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.